Well, good morning. Great to see you. Happy Labor Day weekend. Um, I kind of forgot about that, and then I'm like, first service, you know, there's a lot of people, and then second, I'm like, oh yeah, it's Labor Day weekend. Like, our schedules are adjusted, so great to see you today, and I uh, hope you enjoy today and tomorrow, and, and uh, hit the lake or do whatever you do, but I hope you have a great, great day. Um, you know, uh, it's been fun with some of the videos with Dave. And um, so we got some that uh, didn't make the cut, but uh, <laughs> are you surprised by that? So we're saving those, though. We're going to use them for blackmail at some point. And like, hey, man, we've got you on video with some, you know. But uh, again, I can't emphasize enough that day's really special. And um, I just want you to think of it like you do a, a, a family member's birthday party. Like, you block that out, right? Like, some of you are like, yeah, I blocked that out. I go and I try to get out of there within an hour or so. But uh, come 10 o'clock, we'll eat lunch together. And we're going to have all sorts of stuff in the afternoon, but it's not going to be all afternoon. So you're not looking at like, are you kidding me? I got to be there eight hours? No. But um, just some fun stuff in the afternoon and just a chance to, to spend some time together, but primarily celebrate the faithfulness of God how he laid on one man's heart in Defiance, Ohio in the mid-60s. I want you to start a church in Napoleon. And a few people together got, a few people got together in the armory, and 50 years later, look what God has done and is doing in this community. That's what God does. He just, he does that, and so we want to celebrate that. So we're trying to get synced up, right? Because um, the idea is we're turning 50. It's a milestone. If you're like me, um, when you come to those milestone birthdays, uh, you do a little bit of introspection, right? Um, some of you try to avoid it, not to think about it. I'm going to be 40 next year, and um, I'm already setting goals for myself. I, I'm getting older, like, i got to think six months ahead of even my birthday. Like, what am I going to think when I turn 40? But you're, you're thinking, okay, who am I? Where have I been? Where am I going? What am I about? And um, as we're coming to that birthday of our church, Begin to think about that, and God was like, hey, you want to think about where you've been, who you are, what you need to know? I wrote, I wrote a book, and in fact, in that book, I took a couple chapters, and I wrote specifically to seven churches, and I helped them to understand uh, where they were at, who they were, what, what, um, what was amazing in their life, and then what Jesus saw um, that needed some attention, right? Or needed to change. Or, hey, I can make you go farther and do better and live more like me. And what's amazing about these, these, uh, these letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 is it's Jesus' view of the church 60 years after leaving. That's so cool to me. Like, I get his life, and we all know the circumstance of his life, but now it's like an inside picture into Okay, he's gone. He's left the church in, um, in the hands of his followers. And what does he see from heaven, so to speak, about us? And we get to see that in these churches. They are represented in every age. Right now, these seven churches are represented around this world. And it helps us as a church to kind of, um, kind of think about where do we fit in? What are we most alike? What do we look most like and um but i would remind you as we look at this series it's not just like a church diagnostic for uh, for six weeks or seven weeks it's um 
it also is a, it's a picture, wow, somebody's, hear all those motorcycles? It's a, um, it's a way for us to see something about ourselves. Because the more you start to look at these letters, I begin to realize, you know what, I'm reminded, churches fail because people fail. Churches become a certain way because the people in that church, first of all, became that way. And I begin to realize as I look at this series, as I read these letters, whoa, that looks like me. Whoa, I, yeah. Um, yeah, God, I'm there. Ooh, that kind of reminds me of me. And the question I'd like for you to ask during the series is which letter would Jesus send to me? Which letter would be in my mailbox? Which letter that he wrote would he say, you know what, just take that letter, rearrange the address, I'll sign it, send it to him. Because this is what they need to know about their own lives. So we've seen Ephesus going through the Mosin's church. Our lives can easily become a going through the motions life. We saw Smyrna, a committed, faithful church, a, in the face of tremendous hardship, stayed faithful, committed, devoted. You know what's amazing about Smyrna? I didn't have a chance to share with you as I ended. Of all these churches, they, they disappeared, right? They, they ceased to exist at some point after these letters were written. Smyrna did not. The one that faced the biggest amount of hardship made it through. And in fact, today, in modern day Turkey, in that little town, there are people that trace their roots back to that church that Jesus wrote the letter to. God is faithful. If we're faithful, he will help us overcome. And regardless of hardship, suffering, pain, with him, we are overcomers. And Smyrna teaches us that. And we remember that God calls us to a faithful lifestyle, regardless of our circumstances. So Mark was here last week, and so he messed up my whole schedule. But uh, Mark was awesome. I, we were blessed to have him. And so I'm good with that. So I need to do two churches this week. Some of you are like, oh, great. I'm going to go ahead and text my lunch plans like, no, no, I was good first service. Um, these churches mirror each other. They're very similar. I hope I'm not too confusing today as I try to look at both at the same time, but the same thing's going on with them. And when I look at these churches, one word comes to my mind almost immediately, and it's this word, Ponzi. How many of you know what Ponzi is? Right, what words do you think of when you think of Ponzi. Scheme, what else? False, yeah, it's a fraud, right? Charles Ponzi in the 20s figured out this way, I'm gonna convince people to give me money, I'm gonna tell them I'm gonna invest their money and make them more money, but really what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take their money and then as it goes along and certain ones ask me for money, I'll give them some back so they think that they're, investing in something, but really, I'm just taking their money. You ever heard of Bernie Madoff? You remember Bernie Madoff? That's the biggest Ponzi scheme we've ever seen, really. 
Um, I, I was reading about him this week, man. I mean, the millions and millions of dollars. And finally, in 2008, the scam was up because people, people started asking for their money, too many of them at one time. And he realized, you know what? I don't have enough money because I've taken their money. I've spent their money. I've given whoever's asked for their money. I've given them a little bit back. It's all a fraud. It's fake. It's deception. And when I think about what's going on in these two churches, Ponzi is what comes to mind. It's a Ponzi scheme that's going on. This is what we read. To the angel in the church of Pergamum, Pergamus, Pergamum, right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Okay, picture that. He goes next to the angel in the church of Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God. Notice he doesn't say Son of Man. Son of Man is sympathetic. Son of God is authority. I am the Son of God. A lot of times you talk about being the Son of Man. Oh, I get that, I identify. Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. These two churches, he opens this way. Hey, pastor, angel of the church. Hey, pastor, first thing I want you to remember about me is I got a tongue that's like a sword and I got eyes that are on fire. Now, Ephesus, Smyrna, he says comforting things. I'm the first and the last, remember that. Uh, with Ephesus, I'm the guy who controls all the churches. Remember that. All of a sudden, we have a change in, hey, how you doing? Jesus is saying, I want you to remember I'm the God who has a tongue like a sword. Remember Revelation chapter 1. This is how John saw Jesus. Eyes like fire and a tongue like a sword. And so we immediately realize, whoa, whoa. Jesus is about ready to say something to us that we need to remember. Um, He comes at us with a very authoritative position here. (laughs) We've all experienced this, right? I get to experience this now as a parent, but I experienced it as a kid. Just the tone of voice, right? I need you to get in the house, right? (laughs) Y'all know what that is. They go, uh-oh, here comes the, something's wrong, and we're gonna deal with it. That's this kind of thing. You need to remember, I am the righteous judge. I am the gracious God. I am meek, lowly Jesus. I am love beyond comprehension. I am grace that you can't even fathom. But I am also the righteous judge of this world who desires truth. I am the Jesus Christ of grace and truth. And so he comes at him in this way. It's kind of like getting called in the house, and you already know by the tone of voice, okay, we're going to have a serious conversation. And this is how, this is how it goes. And Pergamus, he writes this, I know where you live. <laughs> you ever said that before? I know where you live. That's what he's saying, you know? Like, I know where you live. No, it's not like that, quite like that. Where did they live? Pergamus, it's the word parchment. Pergamus, parchment. It's where they, it was the paper center of the world. I mean, this is where 
um, Mead and what other paper companies are there? You know, this is where Kinko's and, Fed and uh, all those places, that's where they established their headquarters because this was the paper capital of the world. This is, where they, this is where their wealth started to come from. The parchment, the old parchment from the dried out animal skins, right? Um, this is it. This is what their, their town is even called, parchment. That's what they're about. But what happened in this city was really unique. It had a rich history. It was an influential city. And what went on in Pergamus was kind of different than, I mean, it was similar in a lot of ways to the other churches, but, I mean, this is amazing. In Pergamus, if you would have dropped in to visit and stopped by on a travel, you would have noticed a number of different things about Pergamus. You would have seen things like this. This is a model of what the temple of Athena looked like, the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom, all right? In a town where paper, parchment, was what you made your wealth on, it would stand to reason that there ended up being a major university there, a major library there. Um, and this city was a city that was sophisticated, educated, and they even worshiped every week wisdom, wisdom, understanding, wisdom. And you would have seen that, that every week they're going to a temple and they're trying to get wisdom, right? Become smarter, more advanced. You would have seen God like this floating around, models of him in a temple. Uh, you see the wine goblet there. It's, it's the God of, um, it's the, it's, I, I call him the party God. <laughs> it's the God that they, they uh, it was a, a God of wine, um, he was the God that they worshiped, and in that, there was a lot of celebration. There was a good time. There was a Vegas-type mentality. There was a, um, of course, what followed with this in this culture is they would worship this God of wine who gave, it was, uh, it was, um, it was, you know, they were worshiping all that they had gotten and the celebration of life. And out of that, there was a lot of parties. Um, there was all sorts of uh, activity in that temple that was just a party atmosphere. And you would have seen that. These people, you know what? It's, to me, it's kind of like a college town here. <laughs> it's like, we're gonna go learn and then on the weekends, we're gonna do what? We're gonna party all weekend. Pergamus had that, they just, that was their whole scene. I mean, then you had this. That's a weird picture, isn't it? It's not what I want my family picture, to, or my, how they remember me, but there also was this whole emphasis on healing. They had this God that they worshiped, and they had this temple and this place where they tried all different kinds of remedies and healing-type things. Um, approaches and um, in fact this is the God with the snake on the, on the rod right you ever walk into a hospital or a doctor's office and see that outside I still remember that walking in in Mount Pleasant Iowa to my doctor's office and seeing that you know the snake wrapped around the pole or whatever it is and thinking what in the world that's a weird symbol I'm just trying to get over strep throat what does a snake have to do with that well, it comes from Pergamus. This is this this medical center. That symbol was something that they continue to do, 
And the idea was that um, you could come to this God and find healing. And they even had this, this, this practice in this temple um, that uh, you could go and if you were afflicted by a disease or an illness, you came and you trusted that their, their practices would bring you healing, this God would heal you. But one of the things you were asked to do was, okay, come and stay the night at this temple. Lay on the floor. And what we believe, what they believed was they, would, they had snakes all through this temple, non-venomous snakes. But they would just crawl loose. And you were blessed. You would be considered to be healed. You would be healed if in that night as you slept on the temple floor, a snake would crawl over you. Yeah. I'm out. I'm dying. It's okay. I'll go ahead and take the leprosy or whatever. I don't know. They just worship the health part. There's God of healing. What do you need to feel better? What do you need to keep living? What do you need to have a better quality of life? They worshiped all of this. And in fact, the great throne of Zeus existed in this, this town. This great temple that worshiped the supreme God Zeus. Right? And it was like, you have arrived. Whatever you need to know, whatever you need to experience, however you need to, ex- to enjoy life, it's right here in Pergamos. And if you'll worship our gods, you will, you will live a life that is fulfilling and it's educated and it's, I mean, that's Pergamos. And this is what he says to those that are Pergamos. To the angel or I know where you live. You gonna happen? Uh, go back, sorry. Go back. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Whoa. I'm reading that and I'm like, what in the world? Satan's throne. And Jesus, who sees x-ray vision, who sees the spiritual reality, who always knows what's the, the dynamic, says, listen, in Pergamos, because of all this worship of these gods, it's literally, this is Satan's throne. This is the epicenter of everything that is against me. I'm reminded as I read these words that our lives are lived out in a spiritual dynamic far more than any other dynamic. Jesus sees the spiritual. We often don't even think about it. And I would remind you that your horns and a pitchfork devil who exists in hell for the really, really bad people is an unbiblical concept. Satan's throne is here on this world. I like this phrase. Hell is where Satan wants to incarcerate you. This world is where he does his operation in this world. Satan's throne is here. And man, we need to clue into that. 
We need to see the spiritual reality, the spiritual, spiritual activity to understand that the scriptures teach us that Satan is always trying to deceive, to rob, to destroy our lives in so many ways. And so often we can just live thinking, what am I eating for dinner? And what do I need to do this? And it's all physical world, and totally missing the spiritual realities around us, the spiritual warfare that happens. Jesus never misses that. He said, that place, there is so much satanic activity, it's Satan's throne. I wanna just remind you that Satan's work is mostly done through this one word, deception. That's why I think of Ponzi when I think of this. You see, in the garden, how did Satan approach Eve? Deceiving. How did Satan approached Jesus in the wilderness, tempting him, trying to deceive him, distort what's true. What is he called in the scriptures? Paul says he is an angel of light. He is deceiving people. That's why he is the ultimate Ponzi scammer of all time. He is. He's the ultimate Ponzi. And he says, listen, you are where his throne is. And he says great things to him. Yet you remain true to my name. In the middle of all this, where it looks like you're dumb, you're unsophisticated. I mean, what, I mean, think about it. In this place that's so authoritative, you would say things like, yeah, I, I'm believe, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I, I think Jesus is the real king, not Caesar. I think he's the son of the only true God. Somebody would look at it and say, well, really, where's Jesus now? What happened to him? Oh, he, he was crucified. Really? By who? Well, that would be Rome. Um, well, what was he about? Well, he taught us to live a life of being poor in spirit, uh, meek actually inheriting the earth. If you want to be first, you actually be last. If you want to be the greatest, you actually need to be a servant. Oh, well, where do you worship your God? Where, where's his temple? I mean, I see Zeus's temple. I see this temple. It's all over. Where's his temple? Oh, that would actually be me. You see how absolutely disconcerting this was for those people then. They looked foolish. They looked dumb. They looked uneducated. They would face societal pressures like you can't imagine. You're like that backwoods, unlearned, Pick. You people do not understand. We understand. Athena gives us wisdom. We understand how to get healing for our bodies. Zeus, the supreme God, is who we worship. Are you getting a little bit of the picture? And he said, in the middle of that, you didn't renounce your faith in me. Uh, you know, even though in the days of Antipas, um, my faithful witness, he was put to death in your city, where Satan lives, you remain true to me. Jesus says, listen, you haven't walked away. That's, that is something to celebrate. In Thyatira, he would say this, I know your deeds, <clears throat> your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. He says, listen, Thyatira, you are incredible. Now to understand Thyatira, you gotta understand a different kind of, a different kind of world. Thyatira had become a, a city of business, commerce. It had been ransacked so many times that 
it really wasn't a military place. Rome came, built it up, and out of that, it became the town of really skilled craftsmen. It was uh, Lydia in Acts is from Thyatira, the, the seller of purple, right? The seller of dye. Um, it, was a, it was a place where it just took off in industry. And what happened in that culture was they formed modern day unions, all right? Some of you are waiting for me to make a statement about unions. I'm not going to. I know better. I wasn't born last night, you know. But that's what happened. The biggest thing in that city was what union did you belong to? Were you a carpenter? Were you a wool maker? Were you a, a diesman? Is that even a word? You make dye? And what happened in that city is it literally became, they called them guilds, all right? You became, the biggest thing you needed to do was become a member of the guild. This is what I do for a living. I need to join that guild. In that guild, it's like a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And it becomes, I mean, these are super unions. Like, you literally do life together. Not just work together, but you do life together. And in fact, you worship the same gods together. And in fact, that leads to just all sorts of sharing of your life. And if you want to get ahead, if you want to be successful, if you even want to make a living in this town, it, what union are you a part of? What guild are you a part of? And out of that, your whole life, and it was crazy, man. It was crazy. I, you know, they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, in Thyatira, what happens in the guild stays in the guild. And he says, listen, in the middle of this, where I get that to make it in this town, you have to join one of these unions, these guilds, and they ask you to live a certain way that is not Christ-like, you've stayed faithful to me. You have, you, you, you've been faithful. And in fact, you're more active than you've ever been. This is, this is the ruins from Thyatira. But this is what Jesus then says to both of these churches, what I want us to get. Sounds great. Are you with me this morning? That was kind of boring, right? Now we're gonna get good. He says that this is what I need you to see. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, also, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, again, a very licentious, loose lifestyle. To Thyatira, he says these words, I have this against you. You have tolerated that woman, Jezebel. Her name wasn't Jezebel. It was just like, you are a Jezebel, lady. I don't care what your name is, you're acting like Jezebel, right? You, are, you operate, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Same thing is happening. You see, what's happening in these churches, what Jesus wants them to know and wants us to know is this. These people, are, they haven't walked away from the faith. They haven't decided that Jesus isn't the answer. They haven't 
questioned so much that they've just given up. But yet what Satan has done and what he continues to try to do in, his, in the church is if you can't beat them, join them. And if you join them, change them. And then you've won. It's kind of like the old Greek story with the Trojan horse, you know, subvertly do it. And he says, you're like, you're like Balaam. You have people in your church that are like Balaam. Balaam was that Old Testament prophet who was high, he was a prophet for hire. And in that day, a prophet carried a lot of authority. Balaam's an interesting character. He somehow had some kind of relationship with God. At least he talked to God. God talked to him. But one of the, the Moabites hated Israel, wanted them to be displaced, gotten rid of. And so their king goes, Balak, goes to Balaam and says, listen, I want you to curse the people of Israel so that then I can beat them. And Balaam, who's just all about money, says, all right, pay me enough and I'll curse them. Three times he tries to curse the children of Israel. Nothing happens. And he realizes it's not gonna work. They're God's people. So he devises this plan and he says, listen, I don't think you're gonna, I can't curse them. But I tell you what we can do. Why don't we invite your women to seduce, to intermingle with their men? And over time, their men are going to be enticed by your women and they're going to ask them to marry them. And if you do that enough and in many places, then all of a sudden, you're going to have joined them and what you're going to do is you're going to lead them astray from who they have been. And guess what happened? It worked. And Israelite men married Moabite women and Moabite women caused the Israelite men to stop worshiping God, to worship the idols and the gods of the Moabites. He said, what's happening in your church is what happened back then. People are teaching a doctrine that is perverted, that it's false. I get that you feel like that you're not smart enough, you're not educated enough, you're, you look crazy in this culture. I get that. But some have come in and basically taught you that a little bit of Jesus, but let's take a little bit of what they're teaching and let's put it together. And that way you won't look crazy. You still go to the festivals, to the feasts, where all sorts of sexual immorality happens, where all sorts of God worship happens. You can do both. You can do both. And in fact, he says to the people in Thyatira, he says, listen, you've got a woman in your, con in your congregation that is teaching you things that are causing you to sin. What she's done is I get the tension. I get the tension of, man, I need to be a part of this guild. But this guild's lifestyle, it does not, it doesn't jive with the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. There's a tension there. And she comes in and says, you know what? Just do both. Just do both. Go ahead, be a part of your union. Party, 
live that lifestyle, they have Jesus too. And Jesus looks at that kind of lifestyle, that kind of living. And with a tongue like a sword and with eyes like fire, he says, repent. It's obvious that one of the things that fires God's up the most is when his people try to live a duplistic lifestyle, an adulterous lifestyle. And remember, James says this, friendship with the world is enmity against God. He says God is a jealous lover. He's a jealous God. And he says what you're doing is you're living in spiritual adultery here, which is causing you to live in physical adultery, sexual immorality, and idol worship, which is spiritual adultery. And he said God calls you to a different kind of life. Can you you imagine how absurd it would be And what would you think of me if I went to my wife and said, hey, love what we have here. I want all that. But you know what? Kind of like this girl too and really want to have a relationship with her too. Can we make that happen? It'd be absurd, wouldn't it? Amen? What's going on here? Are we all right? Everybody's like, what's the big deal? Whoa, I'm in the wrong place here, you know. No, can't do that. That's absurd. He said, what you're doing is, is that. And he says these words, repent. Turn from this. I think if Jesus stood in front of them and he stood in front of us, he would, he would sympathize with the pressures that they faced and that we face. In a culture that tells us we're dumb for believing in Jesus, we're idiots for believing that there's a God, that living that kind of lifestyle is, it's, it's boring, it's, uh, you're never gonna get ahead, you're never gonna enjoy life like you're supposed to. That culture was telling them everything that way and our culture's telling us everything like that. You really believe that stuff? Why would you look out for the poor and the disenfranchised? Look out for yourself. You really believe that? How unintelligent are you? A man died on a cross. He rose from the dead. Are you kidding me? That his lifestyle was to serve others, to live for something bigger than yourself? Are you crazy? You need to get all when you can right now and experience it all. That's what our, right? And every day we live just as they did in that pressure. And it can be so easy for us to say, you know what? Maybe there is something to that. I love Jesus. I love all that that is, but I feel like I'm missing out. Maybe I'll just do both. And to that, Jesus replies, just like like my wife would reply to me. after she hit me in the nose. No, No, not gonna work. It's not the way it works, right? Repent. 
And you know, I'm thinking about these churches and I'm, some things are coming to me, just three questions. And they're these. Is my identity formed more by Christ or my culture? Am I more concerned about being accepted by Jesus or am I more concerned about being accepted by my culture? Because if I'm more concerned about being accepted by my culture, then when rubber meets the road and there's a tension and there's a choice to be made, more times than not, I'm gonna choose the way of my culture than the way of Jesus. Where is my identity squarely at in my life? Am I a Christian above everything else? Or I, do I want to be a successful businessman? Do I want to be this or that? And I'm not saying you can't be without Jesus. In fact, I think Jesus can help you a lot with that stuff. But what is my primary identity? See, they were in that tension. Am I a believer? Do I follow the ways of Jesus? Or am I, am I so pressured by my culture? I want to be accepted. I want to fit in that, yeah, I'm just going to join the union. I got to do this. So I, I, I don't... Is my identity formed by Christ or my culture? That leads me to another thought. Do I bend my theology to fit my lifestyle? They were doing that. You know, this is my life. Does Jesus understand what it's like to try to be a believer? To live by his words? to live a life of integrity, to live a life of service, to live a life, does he understand that? I don't think he does. So you know what? Maybe I'll just, uh, maybe I'll just bend what I believe about God so then I feel good. This happens all the time. Either because we look at our lives and we see something about us that we never are gonna change We're never going to get this. We're never going to do that. We're never going to be this. It's hopeless. So you know what? I'm just going to change my theology. And it makes me feel good about my lifestyle. Or I just can't be that person. I I cannot believe those things because I'm going to look like a fool to certain people. I'm never going to fit in. And so you know what? I'm going to change what I believe about God so it fits my lifestyle. That's what they were doing here. It was very pragmatic. Yeah, I'm gonna believe that. You know, I think about what probably Jezebel taught. Maybe things like, you know, you know, if you have a kind of a spiritual relationship with God, it doesn't matter how you live out your life. If you've kind of, like even today, if you've, hey, if you said a prayer or you felt Jesus somewhere, then you're good, man. Spiritually, you're good. And it doesn't matter how you live out your life because you're good. I wonder if she taught him that. We hear that all the time. We hear that all the time. Jesus saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. Or maybe she taught him, hey, God's such a God of grace. Just sin and grace is greater, right? Just keep sinning and grace just keeps covering it. And you get both worlds, man. This is have your cake and eat it too or whatever it is. Cake and frosting and you get the idea. So you know what, I want that. So I'm gonna bend what I think about God instead of staying faithful to the words of God in scripture. 
Jesus said, listen, to those of you who are bending your theology to fit your lifestyle, my tongue, my words are going to be like a sword to you. And my eyes are going to burn right through you. And that begins to beg the question, am I willing? Am I willing to completely live all in to God's word? These people had that struggle, that tension. Were they going to try a little bit of both? Or were they going to say, you know what? Christ calls us to a life completely committed to him. And I'm not going to fit in. I'm going to look dumb sometimes, even though it's completely idiotic to believe that this world happened without God. Just crazy idiotic. But everybody else around just thinks we're crazy at times. I'm going to look different, appear different. Sometimes I'm going to be strange because I just don't believe that. I don't think life should be lived like that. Jesus calls me to to his lifestyle. And Jesus promises this. To both these churches, he says, listen, if you're willing to be all in, to the one who is victorious, I'll take care of you. He says, I'll give you some hidden manna. It's a reminder of a faithful God who always provides. In the middle of like this world, like I don't know how I'm gonna make it if I'm a Christian, God's promising I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. I've always done that. I'm the God of manna. I'll take care of you. He goes on to say, to those of you who are victorious, who are willing to live completely all in to my word, I'll give you a white stone the new name written on it. That means nothing to us today. To them, it meant everything. A white stone in a courtroom meant innocent. Blackstone was guilty. A white stone at the, at the uh, Olympic Games or those games, it meant victor. If you won, you got the white stone. With that white stone, you had all sorts of access. You got to go to all the festivals, all the celebrations, you had the white stone. You were a victor. See, kind of, can you see the imagery? Jesus is saying, listen, if you'll be all in on me, there's something bigger going on, and I will help you to overcome. He says to the church at Thyatira, if you'll be willing to turn from this teaching, if you'll be willing to be all in on my words and just say, you know what? regardless of what the societal pressures and the structures of this fallen world tried to push me into, I'm a Christian. Man, I'm gonna live my life by the words of Jesus. He says, listen, there's coming one day that I'm gonna give you authority over all the nations. Right now, you're trying to figure out how, where do I fit in and you're squeezed and you're moved, but one day with me, you're gonna reign over all this world. He talks about the millennial kingdom that's coming. Will we rule with Jesus Christ? He says, I will, I will give you the morning star. You are going to be the bright and shining light. Right now, you feel like you're at the bottom of the rung. You are, you have been marginalized so much, but one day, I'll give you the morning star. 
And what you believe and how you live is what rules over this whole earth. What is he saying? There's a better day coming. There is an unbelievable day coming if you'll remain faithful to me. And this world is going to pass away and temporary and the structures of this world and the philosophy of this world, they're all going to crumble. But to those who have believed in me, you will rise up in a crazy way. He's promising these churches, I'll provide for you. I'll give you access. I'll give you a preferred future will you just commit to me will you not live the lifestyle of one foot in one foot out because to me that doesn't work that's not it I'm not about that and I'm going to do something with that I mean he promised he tells him we didn't look at it but he tells the people who follow Jezebel you are going to suffer in fact I'm going to do something drastic to you And so as we leave and we're going to celebrate communion as we go, this morning I've thought about this week and guess what? Every one of us in micro ways face this pressure, this tension every week. Do I believe everything that Jesus says or are there areas of my life where I really, I don't know, God. You call me to live this way, but I don't know. Everything around me is telling me not to. And in fact, it seems like if I were, I would go backwards. It wouldn't work out for me. And I get that that tension exists in all of our lives. In my life, I've asked myself, God, this week, where are those little things, or maybe even something bigger that I'd, that I'm tempted to live by the philosophies and the ways of the world, tempted to believe that, yeah, Jesus said that, but I, I don't know if I can commit to that. A whole lot easier to live the rest of the, the way the rest of everybody is living. And you know what? The table is a place that God calls us to offer grace. He calls us a place, it's a, a place where we center on Jesus once again. We're reminded of who he was, what he did. And I think this is a great way to end what we're talking about today, to just come and say, Lord, I recognize that you're the way, the truth, the life. I recognize that through your broken body and shed blood, you have given me an opportunity to be connected to you, to experience new life in Christ, to be forgiven And I recognize that your way is the best way. It's the only way. And I'm here this morning to once again affirm my allegiance to you. Some of us might need to say, God, forgive me. I'm coming to the table with an honest, sincere heart, but as as Chip has talked, as I've looked at this scripture, as I've thought about what it means as the Holy Spirit, as he does, just speaks to each one of us in his own individual way, I realize there's some things about my life that I'm kind of Jesus and I don't follow his teaching because I don't want to... Would you forgive me of that, God? I want to be yours because I see that you look at people like that and say you are like an unfaithful spouse. And I'm not going to tolerate that.
So the table's a great place for us to come. Would you stand with me this morning and pray? Father, these are heavy words from you today. And it's a, it's a very, very relevant topic. Am I going to live completely all in to your words, to your way? Or am I trying to dance with both? Lord, you know us, you know our hearts, you know my heart. God, continue to do a work in me that chases away any ideas or thoughts or philosophies or assumptions that I might have that I know Jesus said that, but I'm not really gonna do that. I mean, that would look stupid. I'm not gonna be able to pull that off. No, I'm gonna embrace it, God. Be all in to your word. And Father, this morning as we come celebrating what you've done, would you just cleanse us anew? Would you just work in our hearts once again to create a a complete, concrete commitment to you, the one who died and gave us life. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Would you come this morning?
of scripture to heart help us to figure out the tension of living in this world but living by the words of Jesus Lord give us wisdom and what that looks like give us grace to strengthen and empower us to live it out Lord help us sincerely to be committed to you be willing to be all in to your word whatever that means. Go with us, I pray, on this weekend. Let's have a great holiday, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.